reached the transitional episode of this series on creation care. Episode 1 sought to establish an understanding of how things were intended to be by exploring the creation narrative. Episode 2 showed the fundamental problem we're facing. The consumerism is our new ethic as a people. It's become so intertwined with our identities that the only escape is the death of our consumeristic selves. But if we learned anything from the systems established in the creation narrative, let's hope there's truth in the old Mexican proverb. They tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. We are seeds, but the cultivation practices of our land have left the soil starved of nutrients. We are seeds, but the soil has been poisoned with chemicals which only allow one kind of thing to grow, if anything at all. We are seeds, but the soil has eroded away. We are seeds, but the rhythms around us have fallen out of balance between sun and rain. We are seeds, and we long for our healthy relationship to the land to be restored so we can grow. I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Liturgy. As we begin to make a turn in our series, I'd like to suggest that restoring our relationship to the land is the key to a holistic view of creation care. In fact, as you will see, it's not actually me that's making this suggestion. If we're seeds, the soil we are planted in matters a great deal. Now, I just want to be clear again that I'm speaking from my context in the United States, but there are essentially two problems with that. Problem number one, our soil is, generally speaking, dead. Let me pause and say, I'm incredibly grateful for Ellen Davis's research in this area. Her book, Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture, an Agrarian Reading of the Bible, is a must read on this topic. The following information is mostly from that text. Here's just a couple massive problems related to our relationship with the land. Number one, our agricultural systems are set up to be dependent on irrigation, which, to put it simply, depletes and compromises our water supply. Agriculture consumes 70% of the water used by humans. This is probably because 48% of agricultural output in the United States is from California which is a desert. As Davis points out, no irrigation-dependent society, with the possible exception of Egypt, has survived. But here's big problem number two. We had no idea this was the case. You see, up until about 200 years ago, 90% of people lived in an agricultural context and mainly grew their own food. About 100 years ago, still almost 50% of the U.S. population was employed in agriculture. 
As of 2008, that number is less than 2%. So, we're seeds, but if we fall on dead or dying soil, and no one is there to see it, do we make a sound? Now, the question you may be asking is, have we drifted from the overall purpose of this podcast? Does any of this have anything to do with theology or liturgy? Well, I don't want to be tricky. The answer is yes. But let's move to the readings this week to find out. There are a couple readings this week, but the main one is another creation narrative. Wait, another one? Uh, yep. Jeremiah 4, 23-26 I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void, into the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and lo, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and lo, there was no one at all, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and lo, The fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins. Before Yahweh, before the Creator's fierce anger. For thus says Yahweh, the whole land shall be desolation. Yet I will not make a full end. Leviticus 18, 25-28 Thus the land became defiled, and I punished it for its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my ordinances, and commit none of these abominations, either the citizen or the alien who resides among you. For the inhabitants of the land, who were before you, committed all these abominations, and the land became defiled. Otherwise the land will vomit you out for defiling it, as it vomited out the nation that was before you.
Leviticus 25, 23-24 The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. With me you are but aliens and tenants. Throughout the land that you hold, you shall provide for the redemption of the land. Genesis chapter 2 Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day God finished the work that God had done, and God rested on the seventh day from all the work that God had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that God had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that Yahweh made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. For Yahweh had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to tell the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth, and water the whole face of the ground. Then Yahweh formed man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And Yahweh planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there God put the man whom God had formed. Out of the ground Yahweh made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Yahweh took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And Yahweh commanded the man... You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Then Yahweh said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground Yahweh formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air 
and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So Yahweh caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh had taken from the man, God made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So let's start here. Yes, there are two different accounts of creation. But for the purposes of this series, I will say, they actually work really well together. One could get really nitpicky and compare the two and potentially find contradictory information. For me, that doesn't matter at all. The two serve very different purposes and styles. And most of the potential contradictions hinge on interpretation of the original Hebrew which is pretty difficult to get exactly right. It seems that they mean to communicate different information. And I'm not going to hang my faith on the eyewitness account of, oh, that's right, no one was there. Humankind didn't come until day six. Genesis chapter two fits much better with this week's topic because it digs deeper into the creation of humanity and, more importantly, humanity's relationship with the rest of creation. Right away, something interesting comes up. In the first account, the tetragrammaton isn't used at all. The Hebrew word used for God in chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 4 is Elohim, the generic word for God. In chapter 2, most of the times that I read Yahweh, the actual phrase was Yahweh Elohim, a combination of the generic name and the sacred name. For a Hebrew audience, this would have almost certainly been a wink toward the eventual covenant that would happen. As I mentioned, chapter 1 had relatively little to say about humanity, but chapter 2 ends up using a lot of relational language. The language isn't only relational in how it talks about God and humankind. It's It's relational in the description of the creation of man. Chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then Yahweh Elohim formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. But it's just crazy how much we miss by reading this in English. First, the Hebrew word for man is Adam. The Hebrew word behind dust of the ground is Adamah. Yahweh Elohim forms Adam from Adamah. And yes, That similarity is intentional. 
But there's more. The generic term for dry land or earth is actually Eretz. Adama is specifically used for arable cropland or fertile soil. Additionally, it's important to know that for the Hebrew people, all air was connected with God's being and God's activity. So when you read air in the Bible, know it would have been understood as having a divine quality. So I know this isn't scientific at all, but according to scripture, there are two ingredients that make up humans, soil and divine breath, or as Augustine described it, animated earth. What is humanity's relationship with the land? One could say we are homoousius, of the same substance. Mother Earth no longer seems like a ridiculous phrase. Our relationship to the Earth is familial, to say the least. I should think this familial relationship would recontextualize the way we view our responsibility toward the rest of creation. I think we've grown accustomed to words like subdue and dominion, but those words fall short of giving us any understanding about how we should operate in the world. And through the lens of consumerism, they become licensed to make everything a resource. Genesis 2.15 offers a more specific idea of our role. Adam was placed in the garden to work it, abad in Hebrew, and keep it, shamar in Hebrew. Now, abad does mean work, but it also means serve. And shamar does mean keep, but it also means to care, guard, and protect. Why is this important? Because we are stewards, not owners. As God reminds the people in Leviticus 25, 23 through 24, the land is mine. With me, you are but aliens and tenants. Throughout the land that you hold, you shall provide for the redemption of the land. For the people of God, this land is not your land. It's not my land. We are stewards, made of the very land we have exploited. We are stewards of the land, and we have worked the soil into dust. Over half our bodies are water, and we've polluted it, and them. The air, which at one point was considered to be divine, grows more and more unbreathable. I don't believe all of us need to become farmers, but we absolutely do need to reclaim our relationship to the land. Let me make a distinction though. Last week, I aligned consumption with sin. I wanna be clear, I'm not really doing that this week. This week, I'm talking about something more like spirit. Here's what I mean. One could certainly make the argument that our lack of relationship to the rest of creation is sinful. I guess I did that last week. This week, I'm turning more toward what we're missing. You've probably heard the term pantheism. If you come from any sort of conservative background, you probably know the term because it's, it's been disparaged in your life. The term you may not know is panentheism. This definition may not be complete, but here's how I like to explain the difference. Pantheism basically says God is everything. Something like, if one were able to gather everything that exists, 
that would be God. Panentheism, on the other hand, says God is in everything. I'm not a pantheist because at the core, I believe that at the very least, there is some aspect of God that is other than material. In other words, if one could possibly gather everything that exists, one might have a much better idea of what God means, but would still lack some mysterious element that is other than material. However, I would say I'm a panentheist. That every single aspect of creation or aspect of materiality reveals something about God. God is in everything. So, as our relationship with the land, our relationship with our air, our relationship with the water drifts away, so does our understanding of God. I also think God is far more obvious in the systems that we're told God created than in the systems that humankind created. In other words, as our relationship to the land or other elements in creation diminishes, the image of God begins to fade away and we're left with the God we made in our image. I understand this concept cognitively, and I understand it experientially. I've talked about my various experiences in doubt over the course of my life, or as some have called them, times of wilderness. Let me be clear. It wasn't ever the church who called me back. It was my experiences of wonder in creation, feeling the sun on my body, seeing a sunset, standing partway up a mountain. God is in the wilderness. Think about that idea in contrast to the way many churches seem to be going today. More and more churches meet in a dark room where the only thing that can be seen is artificial. Now, I don't say that judgmentally. At one point in my life, I was a huge part of pushing certain churches that direction. I was wrong. I'm sorry. We are seeds, but before we can grow, we need to reestablish our relationship to the land so we can heal the systems in our soil. We must remember our baptisms, but before we can touch the water, we must remove the chemicals that will harm us. And we long to breathe the spirit in deeply, but we dare not breathe until we filter out what will choke us instead of give us life. That's it for this week's episode. Next week, we turn the corner towards solutions to the theological problems that have arisen in these first three weeks. The fifth and final episode of this series will be all about where we go from here with several action steps to move toward reconciliation with creation. But we start next week with the fourth episode, Sabbath. 
It is, in my opinion, the first step toward this reconciliation. I'd love if you would join us online at postmodernliturgy.com. You can also connect with us on social media. We're at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram, and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. Finally, I would love if you would consider supporting our work. You can do that for free by sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast in your particular app. Or you can do that financially by becoming a patron on Patreon. You can see several great benefits for our supporters on different levels there. None of you owe anything for this podcast, but if you appreciate this beginning seed of an idea, your financial support could make this work a lot more sustainable and allow it to grow and happen more often. You'll be in great company with several wonderful supporters we already have. So check out our Patreon site at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy to see all the options and become a supporter. Thanks for joining me. And as always, enjoy the tension.